0: And so we would do hook and line fishing. We felt like that was, uh, we could be selective about the catch that way. There's other methods of fishing that are a little quite a bit less selective to say the least. We could release fish that didn't meet size limits, things like that. so we we were able to harvest, you know, like I said, grouper and snapper, and we can, you know, move around different depths depending on the time of year. But most of the time we were fishing over the summers because... The commercial stone crab season for Florida, which is a huge market in Florida, is from October 15th until May 15th. So that period of time, we were typically crabbing.
1: Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses richard jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you he hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field sleep science cancer stem cells ketogenic diets and more here come the geniuses this is the finding genius podcast
2: with richard jacobs hello this is richard jacobs with the finding genius podcast and the surviving hard times podcast. i have uh, glenn luffridge he's a director campus dining and concessions at Auburn University, and you know, how they produce and acquire local fresh food to feed to the Auburn people, you know, some of the issues surrounding that. So Glenn, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Looking forward to having a chat. Well, excellent. Tell me a bit about your background and how you came into the position you're in, and then we'll kind of go from there.
0: So kind of came kind of a roundabout way. I did graduate from Auburn University. Um, obviously wanted to come back. My wife and I it, it always kind of plotted that way. I did own, you can see, you can see uh, my, my kid's picture there on a fishing boat. I did own a commercial seafood business in Florida that I worked in for, for a few years. Yeah, stone crabs and grouper fished and my brother's still in it. And so that was something I did for a long time and actually got into uh, management recruiting for restaurant managers, and I, I got to know uh, some of the contractors that work business, and and so when Albert had an opening managing a contractor, uh, that seemed like a good opportunity for me, and that's kind of how I got here.
2: Um, if you don't mind, can we talk for a few minutes about the seafood business? i never met anyone that was in it, so it might be interesting. Absolutely, love to. Okay, yeah. Well, what kind of things came up uh, there? Like, would you do uh, fishing charters, or would you go out and fish yourself and provide, you know, a catch to restaurants or other places? What was it like?
0: The latter. So we did, we were kind of in distribution, so to speak. Uh, So we we would catch it and then get it to restaurants. We did not sell, we didn't have a retail location. Uh, My brother and I had about, uh, at one point we had five boats. Uh, We had 10,000 stone crab traps. And then we had a commercial license for, to catch bottom fish like grouper and, and snapper and things like that. And so uh, my brother and I would fish together in the summers. We had a captain for some of the other boats, but that was a lot of fun um, from that perspective. Until, until I had young kids and uh, you're, being gone for seven days is, is not conducive to uh, marriage and children. I can say that. It's a little tough.
2: Oh, so, so what would happen in order to fill the boat and make it worth it? You'd have to be at sea literally for days at a time.
0: Yes. I mean, it it costs quite a bit. I mean, you know, just, I mean, between fuel, you got to put 5,000 pounds of ice in the boat um, to really make it worth it. You know, you wanted to bring home, you know, a couple thousand pounds of fish. And so we would do hook and line fishing. We felt like that was, uh, we could be selective about the catch that way. There's other methods of fishing that are a little le- quite a bit less selective, to say the least. We could release fish that didn't meet size limits, things like that. And so we, we were able to harvest, uh, you know, like I said, grouper and snapper, and we can you know move around different depths depending on the time of year. But most of the time, we were fishing over the summers because uh, the commercial stone crab season for Florida, which is a is a huge market in Florida. is from October 15th until May 15th. So that period of time, we were typically crabbing.
2: Well, for getting crabs, what are some of the methods that you can use to get them? And, you know, how does each work? so it's interesting
0: stone crabs are actually a renewable fishery because you don't keep the whole crab we actually broke the claw off the crab Um, sometimes you'd be able to rake too because we were commercial a lot of the ones that even when we broke both claws they would jump back up they would climb back in our traps and and eat our bait then but they were they are able to regenerate their claws up to four times in their lifetime you have to train your crew to break the claws correctly to make sure they release it and it doesn't tear off and but that's, I mean, you know, we, we definitely did a lot of that. <laughs> it's a small trap, 14 by 14 with a concrete bottom. They can be wood or plastic. They have a rope attached and you have 10,000 of them. So they're not run together. Some people put them together and what we call long line them, but we typically just would go with individual traps and you just go, you would pull a line of say 150 to 200 traps. You have two winches on the back end. If you've seen deadliest catch, you know, they throw that Grappling hook. We had long poles because we didn't have as big of boats, uh, so we had about a 10 foot long, what we called a hook pole. You'd grab the line, throw it in the winch, reel it up, and then you'd have uh, your your crew would be clearing the trap of crabs, sorting anything that was too small. We'd go back over the side. Everything that met would be harvested, and then you
2: throw the crab back, and then bait the trap and push it over the side. How how often would you uh, go look in the traps to see what was in there?
0: So you'd want to see them once a week, sometimes twice a week if it was really, really hot. You know, if a storm hit, it's interesting. Uh, the crabs like to crawl around when the when the water's really murky because most of the things that eat them are sight predators. So, you know, your grouper and snapper and other fish like that, triggerfish, they typically will predate a crab. So they, they don't like to be moving around when, especially at night, when the other fish can see them. So they like it when it's uh, the water's about like chocolate milk. Really stirred up. So when it's when it would storm, we'd want to go out there
2: and get our traps baited because we knew the crabs would be crawling around. Hey, yeah, it's tough. How would you know if uh, how many times a crab's claw has been broken? Like, can you tell if someone's broken? that was before? actually
0: no? There's no way to tell. The, um, the University of Florida did the research on that. I'm just citing their uh, <laughs> their research that they can do it up to four times. That was what I heard and, and read, but that was not a, nothing I could prove. Like, I mean, I think they actually did it in a
2: lab. Well, could you, like, I don't know, get a dot of some kind of marker, like, you know, pull off the claw, go dot, you know, on the <laughs> arm that's left, and then throw them back. And then if it stays, maybe you'd know, like, oh, there's three dots, this is the last one, take the whole thing.
0: Well, the whole thing, uh, they're, they're not really edible. There's not a lot of meat in the main part of the crab, so it doesn't make any sense to take the whole crab. But as far as uh, marking them, because crabs molt, it's hard to keep a mark on them because they're going to, when they grow, they oh. shed that whole skin. Or that that shell yeah. they then their their outer skin hardens up
2: again before we continue. I've been personally funding the Finding Genius Podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives in our world, even though this podcast gets a hundred thousand plus downloads a month. We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Wait, um, for the grouper and the other fish, could you take like just a shell of a crab and tie it to like fishing line? and have it dragged along with the lions, so that
0: no, you can't... cannot that would yep. be a that'd be a good way to get this deep water with the state of Florida stone crabs were are definitely something that's a major industry in the state Joe's stone crabs is, you know famous they're all the way out in las vegas um so there's there's quite a few restaurants that serve them in the state and so they're really they don't want you to have short crabs they don't want you to have whole crabs, so they they definitely Watch that pretty closely.
2: Yeah, but I mean, if there's going to be some that don't make it, that die and get caught and all that stuff, like I don't know, is is there any way to? Are you saying the system would be abused? Like, why could not it just say, hey, you know, one percent of the crabs they don't make it, so could we tie the shells to the nets and use it as a bait?
0: I, you know, I mean, I th- I think it it might be possible. I don't know how you know, like I said, logistically. When you're going through thousands of crabs a day, I mean just just the trying to mark them, trying to do something like that. Think the bet, you know. Obviously, it would be great if we could get an, uh, get another use out of the ones that we know aren't going to make it. But I, I think practically, when you're dealing with that many claws, you know, what we we you know, opening
2: season we would catch a thousand pounds. So I mean, it's 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 a lot of crabs. Did you ever tell your kids that you uh, you caught Mister Crabs or you had a Krabby Patty formula? They watch SpongeBob. <laughs>
0: You know, we didn't watch a lot of SpongeBob, but um, yes, I'm sure that they would have found that hilarious. if I caught the. I used to tell them stories about, you know, about the crabs because stone crabs are, you know, they kind of face the world with their claws out. They're not a friendly animal. One of the stories I would tell them was really about cooperation because, you know, one of the things that eat stone crabs is octopus, and so if an octopus gets in a trap, you've got, you know, maybe ten or twelve stone crabs that can crush clams with their claws. I mean, they, they could probably really put a hurting on an octopus, but because they're used to being on their own, they all go in a corner and they kind of huddle up and try to hide. And so the octopus just got, kind of wanders around in there with impunity and eats the crabs. If they all ganged up on the octopus and, and cooperated, they wouldn't get eaten. That's, mm, you know, okay. that's kind of the life lesson there.
2: Well, at the end of the season, I would think that would be when you have the most crabs with no claws anymore. And the, uh, the octopuses would go crazy, so maybe it'll be a good time to octopus fish a week or two after the season ends because they'd be fat and happy, and it might be a lot of them.
0: It was interesting. So the octopus typically would push them inshore about the middle when, when the water started getting cold. The octopus would push them from offshore towards the inshore, and so you'd want the the trick was to get traps ahead of the the octopus, kind of pushing them inshore, because that you get. A big bunch of crabs that way but towards the end of season, the season that octopus have already gone back offshore it's just one of those vagaries of, of the way it works so we didn't see a lot yeah. of octopus in the spring we saw them all with them before Christmas most of the time
2: okay gotcha well I guess it's right, so a transitioning to your current work at Auburn University like what are your job duties and what do you do and you know ask some questions around that if that's okay
0: sure absolutely you know the main thing I do is kind of the advocate between the university and our, our contractor. We have Aramark who is our current food service provider. So we have uh, 38 locations on campus that include food trucks, dining halls, you know, coffee shops, all of the above, and then we have concessions and all of our athletic venues. So those those are my primary duties. The, the things I do every day is just make sure that we're that we're meeting the contract um, from both sides. That when there are Opportunities for us to get better. Let's say that I'm communicating those, and that we're establishing good a good understanding of what we expect every day, right? I mean, I think that's an important thing. I, they, you got to know where the wins are. Um, it's it's hard enough. I mean, food service. You know, I like to say we do 22,000 transactions a day. There's an opportunity for us to to mess up at least one of those every day, and so we're gonna we're gonna have those, and and we have to know that. But we also can react and try to not have the same ones over and over again.
2: What does that mean? What do, you, what do you mean mess up? You're you're out of something or supply chain, you, you didn't order enough or what does mess up mean? Oh, well, I mean, just, it could be a customer
0: service issue. You know, the ketchup could have been out in the dining hall. Those are things that, that make people, you know, upset. I, I mean, you know, you're going to get a call from someone that didn't have the optimal experience, right? Could be they got a, a chicken sandwich that wasn't as hot as they wanted. It could be that something, you know, they ordered, you know, a coffee drink that wasn't made to their specifications. Those are all opportunities that can happen on any given day and that, that can happen in any restaurant. It's just how you
2: respond and, and how do we, you know, value each customer equally. Well, what did you notice about the ebb and flow of, you know, what did people eat preferentially at different times and you know, when did that change and how did it change? Like did they eat more burgers in the summer and then in the winter they ate more soups, or you know, did you just you know, give what you guys thought you wanted?
0: Uh, you know, I think that what I find interesting is the way tastes evolve with, you know, we have uh, obviously freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Um, so, you know, your freshman year, um, they do, they they like to eat Chick-fil-A quite a bit. They eat a lot of chicken. So fried foods, familiar uh, favorites, pizza, things like tend, tend to be more freshman fare. And as they grow older, our food trucks are most popular with our uh, juniors and seniors and it's a little you know it's usually something that's uh, you know we have a local restaurant that has a, a food truck that has a, a crab cake sandwich you know a very popular turkey wrap we have a, a food truck that serves uh, has gyros and and Mediterranean style food we have one that has Indian food uh, we have one that has uh, you know Asian noodle type uh, fare so the you know it's those types of things I think that uh, students taste evolve. They try new things. They eat sushi more often, um, things like that. So I think that's that's pretty interesting to me. The way that their tastes tend to evolve over time.
2: What about uh, supply chain issues? Have you had any, or have you not noticed that? You know, in no, the we definitely
0: have had them. There's definitely been quite a few supply chain issues. I mean, typically you're, you'll set your menu, and then and then you'll adjust your menu based on what you actually got on the truck versus what you ordered. You know, we mm. we've had a pretty good of getting about 85 percent of what we ordered um, and so you can you know add to uh things that are available um, to kind of get through but you know we've had some we've had a couple of t- a couple of days where i've seen uh, uh several of the same protein on the same on, on the menu you typically like to mix it up a little bit but sometimes hey we got a lot of pork loin but we didn't get chicken this time so we mm. we're gonna have a couple of different pork loin uh type dishes. And so that's, you know, and that's, and that's part of it. You, everyone's having to adjust to supply chain at this
2: point. Yeah. Okay. Um. Any other interesting phenomena you observed, you know, uh, you know, that the, I guess the public or the students don't see, like, what are some of the big challenges you face with providing, you know, enough food, the right food, a good experience, etc.?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think some of the, you know, labor has been a big challenge. I think that it's interesting to see how people you know people want to deal with people anymore which is not a, which is not a good thing i think that we have a very demanding consumer in this day and age and every restaurant that i i currently know is having trouble with getting enough staff and so it's mm-hmm. it's a tough job it's one that comes with um demands and from a time standpoint it's not necessarily the highest paying job all the time although it's gotten better but, I mean, I think that there's, you know, with, with, with the economy the way it is, as far as there's plenty of jobs um, out there, so people are making different choices. Uh, I think hospitality is one of those things that you really has got to be in your blood a little bit. Uh, you got to enjoy seeing people smile when they eat the food that you've prepared, and they've had a great experience knowing that kind of fuels you. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we're really concentrating on right now is technology there are incredible ovens and things like that that allow us to utilize staff in different ways where recipes are already programmed into the machine you know into the oven so that uh, we can get optimal food out with less um, culinary talent and because uh, you know it's one of those things it's hard to find a good sous chef right now they're in high demand uh, so you typically will have an executive chef and we'll have cooks And so um, it's you've got the really at the very top of the food chain and then you've got kind of entry level. So it's it's important to be able to use that technology to kind of elevate your cuisine without having to um, have the without having the body. Because, again, we've typically had sous chefs. They've kind of been that midpoint where they're doing a lot of teaching along the line, helping cooks understand what we're trying to get out of each dish. And now um, you you just don't have those folks. And so I I think it's really helped us to to utilize technology.
2: Are there different levels of, of food that you can order, you know, from the company, like grade A strawberries versus like grade B or, you know. Well, and I'm sure there's all kinds of jokes like grade D, like fit for human consumption.
0: <laughs> well, grade D is not going to go over here. We we do yeah. specify uh, that, that we do want grade A foods. You know, for us, you know, one of the reasons we got into growing some of our own food, obviously it's a student desire, was first and foremost that they wanted healthier, locally grown options. And so I found that it was very expensive a lot of times to, you know, to get to some of those foods. And so there's a real balance point that we have to have on a college campus. We have affluent students who can afford to eat organic and can have anything they want on a given day. But we also have students that have to, every penny counts. You know, if, if things are too expensive, it means they're not going to eat as much. And we don't want. Them. And so we we try to find the balance there. And the dining hall is a good place to do that. We have the dining plans that are all access that allow a student to eat all of their meals with us. And so we want to make sure that we're exposing them to things that are healthy and 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 hopefully that they find really interesting. And, and again, that's one of those things where we started growing our own produce to, to try to take advantage of that, to to give students an experience that maybe they can't have somewhere else. Uh, We grow lettuce on campus and we harvest it and we bring it to dining hall that day. Um, It's very hard to eat lettuce that was harvested the same day. I mean, I can tell you, unless you live in Yuma, Arizona, uh, (laughs) it would be hard to have access to it. I mean, that most of most of the lettuce that's grown and for this country is grown in, in Arizona, California and Mexico. And so Mm -hmm. for Alabama, we're going to, you know, it's probably going to be seven days. Doesn't mean it's bad. Just means it's seven days old. And so um, our shelf life is better. Things like that. Really, it really helps with those things. Tomatoes are another one. We we have tomatoes that we're growing in our aquaponic system that I'll put up against anything. I mean, they are amazing tomatoes. They taste great. And we want students to have that experience because hopefully that's going to create in them a preference for local food, for food that was allowed to vine ripen, things like that. So that's always been something that's really important.
2: Yeah, how are people reacting to the uh, the stuff that you grow? Like, so you grow lettuce, and what else do you grow?
0: Uh, we grow tomatoes, um, peppers, and, and and again, we're we're working with the horticulture students and faculty so sometimes we you know we've, we've grown quite a few cucumbers in the past we grow like i said peppers and tomatoes we have pinos we do romaine lettuce we do a lot of leafy greens we have a um we have some uh, vertical farms called freight farms that we're growing a lot of our leafy greens out of that gives us a that's controlled environment allows us to get exactly what we want on a given week so we we it's very predictable Um, you know, as, as long as the power doesn't go out, we've got, you know, 150 pounds of spring mix every Monday now that you get by Wednesday, but it's, it's something that we can expect and we can feature and students really love it.
2: Yeah. Well, what does that do to the, to the food you guys provide? So it's a mixture of what you guys grow and then what you guys buy off the trucks. Um, have you found like what, you know, what combination is, is enough to make the food, I don't know stand out and be perceived as far better than, than just getting stuff off the truck only?
0: Right. Um, You know, we, we do some branding and, you know, we, we like to, you know, point that out, let, let people taste it. I mean, I think that they can taste the difference. I mean, it's very tender. Um, Obviously the nutritional value. I mean, my understanding is that you can lose up to 50% of the nutrition in lettuce each day after it's been harvested um that's that's something that's been cited to me, and so that just just thinking about it in those terms, even if you taste take taste out of the equation, um the fact that you're gonna get so much more nutrition out of something that was harvested quickly like that you know, I think there is a opportunity for us to do a better job of you know we we we're working on a branding effort now, and that is kind of the soup to nuts approach about food on campus from where we grow it. Uh, where we serve it, what do we do with food that's left over? So we do have food um, each that we over-prepare, and it's in it's perfectly good food never got served, um, and we are able to recover that with a uh, we have a food recovery network on campus. Where we built a space for uh, they're called campus kitchens, and so they recover up to, they've recovered fifty thousand pounds of food in a year um, from us and from some from some other local restaurants. And what, they what re- do you mean
2: recover? Like they they resell it? Well,
0: they don't sell it. No, sir. Uh, they they actually do donate it to, mm. to folks that are food insecure. So what we do is we freeze it. Uh, we have blast chillers. So typically this would be something that was in a hot box, ready to go out on a line because we have to be ahead. Because, you know, if you get 100 students that come, you know, at 8, 8 p.m., you got to be able to feed them. And so we've got mm. some things that get prepared ahead of time to be able to serve. Fresh food made that day every day. We don't, you know, we don't hold it over for the next day. So that food uh, typically would have been wasted, uh, but we are mm-hmm. able to take that, put it into a blast chiller, bring the temperature down quickly uh, to make it safe. It, it then uh, is transferred over to campus kitchens. Those students, it's all student led. Uh, they pick it up from our dining hall. We, they take it uh, over to their space and they put. They have a walk-in freezer in their space on, here on campus, and then they'll divide that out into and. And portion it out into into meals and then uh they serve it the students who are here on campus uh if they need it or if, uh, they they serve quite a few meals in the
2: community as well so what's um what's it like at other schools i don't know if you converse with you know the same person in your position at other universities like is there a big variation in how universities do what you do or are you, you know do you feel like you're leading the way or you're learning you know techniques from other places
0: so the, I mean, we have the number one chapter of of uh, I would say, of, you know, Campus Kitchen for sure. It was a national organization; is not not one anymore. Um, I do know that there are other food recovery networks, um, and I have to say that you know I I wasn't the one that created it. I'm just a big supporter and and a big fan of these students who do uh, such amazing work. I you know there there are different different schools handle food in different ways. I'm not sure how many of them have food recovery networks. I knew that there there are a few. Uh, University of Kentucky definitely comes to mind. They have a great program and uh, really prize sustainability as far as local sourcing, as well as uh, making sure that they have um, a place on campus where students can get inexpensive meals. They've got a great program for that. So uh, different Mm -hmm. folks handle it different ways. For us, Campus Kitchens has been just an amazing student organization. Uh, One of my favorite stories is they do serve uh, there's a local, um, you know, retirement community uh, for for folks that need assisted living care. Um, our students will actually go and they'll warm food up and take it there and eat with the residents. And what they okay. found is it's created such a community because the the residents would typically take their uh, meals in their room until they knew they could come down and see kids that look like their grandkids, and they come down mm-hmm. and eat college students. And by doing that, they met their neighbors. And began kind of a process where community got built in because they, they started seeing other people, they started making friends. And so it was a really big deal what they did, but it really speaks to how
2: food and community are so inextricably linked. Yeah, well, that's really cool that it did that. Interesting. Do any of the students want, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think Auburn operates, let's say, necessarily a you know, culinary school, but do they? Are you able to use the food department to, you know, for students that are interested in culinary arts to train them, and stuff
0: like that? We, have, we actually have just finished building culinary school that's uh, literally across the street from us. It's attached to, we have an excellent hotel restaurant management program um, that is, and, and we now have a world-class facility. Um, that I would put up against anybody's. Uh, So we we have our first class this year. And that is definitely something uh, that we're excited about is the opportunities to partner going forward. Uh, Really, the the, the students that are, a lot of the students that are in campus kitchens are um, pre-med students. Um, They need service hours. And it's been a great way for them to get service hours with something that really touches um, the public. But there's lots of other students that
2: are uh, involved as well. Yeah, no, that's really cool. There's a lot of things you can do with this that you are doing. It's really great. Absolutely. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no, sorry. What what areas do you think still need improvement or need to be pushed forward, and how? So for us,
0: I mean, I think you know we're we're struggling with composting a little bit. The just currently Auburn is pretty landlocked, and we you know the and property values are very high. So finding a a large tract of land where we could do composting um, has kind of been you know a difficult situation um the other thing is that not, there's not many people that want to own composting if 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 i want to be Blunt. Um, <laughs> it's a difficult. Uh, nobody wants to deal with, you know, post-consumer waste, things like that. So we've kind of identified a, a system we'd like to implement. We're working with our facilities folks um, on campus to find a site where we can have an end-to-end composter. And that's definitely something we want to invest in because I feel like that kind of um, creates that perfect circle where we would be able to bring back food that is would have been waste and can be composted and then turned into soil and then you know we'd be able to use that uh, to grow more food i mean that's that's kind of the point right uh, to be able to return well, what fruit.
2: is is composting perceived as like a low level job or what's why is it, are people not attracted to it at all
0: well i mean it just it's expensive to do when you have, when you don't have a place, you know what I'm saying? So like, if we had a program, you know, if we had a, and we do have agronomy and soils, uh, we are land grant university, but we've, you know, a lot of our folks have have concentrated on other um, endeavors, let's say, I mean, we don't have a researcher that was really focused on it. And that's really what I've been fortunate with, with horticulture, Um, controlled environment uh, was very uh, interesting to, especially Dr. Wells. And then obviously, uh, Dr. Lane as well that, that are here on campus, that uh, they're they're interested in that and going forward with it and, and bringing that to the state of Alabama. So uh, when you have researchers that are interested in a subject, then you have, you know, kind of folks that want to partner with you. Uh, we just haven't found that partner yet. Uh, we we can bring uh, some funding to the table for it. But it's just one of those things where it really I, I can't own that. I've got I've got a big job as it is. I, and, and it's not something yeah. I can do myself.
2: Yeah, I understand. There's only so much you can do. But it sounds like you're doing a lot. Recovering 50,000 pounds of food each year is is tremendous. That's that's really, really cool.
0: Yeah, it's been something we, we, we've been very proud of. For, um, and, and really, again, it's, it's prizing food as a resource. I think it's the most sustainable thing we can do is to recover food and feed those who are hungry. I think it's really critical.
2: Yeah. So, um, again, where, where is the program headed? Anything new that you're working on that is going to be rolled out soon? Or is well,
0: something going we got- Well, something we are working on right now is we've been doing some research and what we've linked is the average transactions a student has on campus in their final GPA. And what we did was we took and we found that if you graph it, um, that students who have a lower GPA typically have lower transactions on campus and students with a higher GPA have more transactions. And that really is not so much that Eating makes you smarter because I would love that to be true because I'd be a genius. I eat here all the time. The problem, <laughs> the problem is, or, or, or I guess the opportunity is, more time spent here. Everything that we have that that's focused on student success, um, the community that we can build here, all of those things—they all reside on campus. And once you get home to your apartment or somewhere across the street, you're you're more than likely going to be tempted by you know the potential twelve pack in your fridge or. Whatever else, your, your your Xbox, you know, mm-hmm. Instagram or, 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 or TikTok, whatever that is, it just makes it hard to come back maybe in the afternoon or, or to focus mm-hmm. the way you need to to succeed. And so it's really um, what, what I like to think of us as is an incentive for students to spend more time here. And so that's really where my focus is, is, is how do we continually create spaces that students want to be in And if we can do that, um, whether that's with food, um, whether it's a coffee shop, whatever that is, if it's a space they want to hang out in, we're actually helping them succeed academically. Uh, We've actually gone back four years now and looked at a four-year trend, and there's about a 30, I think it was 38% difference between, say, a 2.0 student and a 4.0 student, Mm -hmm. and and how many transactions that they had actually on campus.
2: So it's, again, it's not a function of, you know, eating here. It is a function of being here. What about, um? I don't know if this would be counterproductive, but what if you did like an internal DoorDash type service where students could sign up and you deliver it to their dorm rooms or at night you deliver, you know, again, they maybe pay a little extra, but the students that could afford it, maybe that would help save them time and et cetera, or maybe it would backfire, I don't know. Well,
0: I mean, I think it's it's interesting. It's one of those. That's a question that comes up a lot for me is is that, you know, how far do we want to go to make it convenient or do we really want them to come down from their room and go eat dinner with their peers? You know, I mean, I think you have to be careful. So like, you know, a late night food service. Absolutely. I think that's that's a great opportunity for us um if we can you know uh, staffing it might be problematic at the moment but if we could get there I'd love it I'd love to be able from say 9 p.m. on till say 2 in the morning be able to deliver food to students that would be great and safe um but really for dinner we really want them to come down and and eat community I mean I think we we feel like that's such an important part of of your growth of getting to know your peers of connecting to Auburn um, our student experience is excellent. Uh, we've been rated—I think in in 2021 we were rated by the Princeton Review as the happiest students, uh, which is a great thing to have. Uh, as far as if you're gonna if you're gonna have a, a claim to frame, uh, having happy students is not a bad one. Uh, yeah. So you know, and and so so that's kind of one of those things. We really want them to get this opportunity that they have to to get to know each other, to spend time, and to really get that Auburn experience
2: that we feel like is really high value. No, that makes a lot of sense. Well, very good. Um, what's the best way for people to find out more about uh, the program you're working on? You know, maybe they're from another university, student or faculty, and to learn from you guys as well, to what you're uh, what you're doing.
0: Well, we're at auburn.edu/dining, so you can you can go to our website there. You can email dining at auburn.edu. You can get my email from that, but happy to talk to anybody about anything that they heard and and would be interested in learning more about.
2: Okay. Well, very good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, like I said, you have a very interesting background. So there's a lot of great material we covered. And, And again, thank you for being here.
1: All right. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.